Welcome to Multifamily Live. I'm Kaylee Arusi. And I'm Jason Arusi. Our mission is to help you unlock your full potential as a multifamily real estate investor. So you can do more deals, bigger deals, with less stress, keep more profit, and free up your time. Multifamily doesn't have to be a mystery. It's time to go live. Hello, Peely and Jason. Thank you for joining me. So happy to be here. Yeah, so, honored. To be here. so it's great to have you both. Uh, as I was just saying, it's always fun to have two guests on a show because you get both perspectives and, and the battle of who gets to answer what's question. So I'm going to start with a question about both of you. Um, you you're obviously in the property investment world, uh, Yurusi Holdings. So that's your, your family name, your last name. Well, one of you, your family names anyway. Um, you're married, you have children. Uh, I know the last number I saw reported was about $75 million of property under management portfolio, something like that. I know you've got big numbers. I'm reading your website, 800 units with partners, 450 under management. That's massive. I can only imagine the logistics of controlling all of that. Um, have I summarized everything? Are there any other highlight reels that I should throw in there? You know, um, you did a good job. We, that's been uh, like, there's like plus and minus thing going on there. We, we've uh, had two acquisitions. We have another one coming up and then we sold two properties. So, mm -hmm. but in realm, you know, that that's part of the flow, right? So we, we're going to have that constant inflows and outflows as properties as we continue to go here. Typically there's a cycle between three to seven years on which we hold properties. And so we really focus on one acquisition per quarter and that that's what really our game plan is and our actions lead us where it may not in line that we, we get a deal a quarter, but usually for the year on the scope of the year, if it falls out, that we'll, we'll find about four opportunities that, that will come upon us. Okay. How do you two divide up the work? Like is one of you a specialist at one side and another specialist at the other? <laughs> so we actually get asked this question a lot. We, mm -hmm. uh, let's, let's, let's start with everything that happened like in 2020. So when 2020 happened, we like, we have, both had these conversations like what part of the bus do we sit on so when something big happens and this has nothing to do with me being the mom and jason being the dad or a male or female but he went totally business and i went and i went totally family we crossed each other's paths a lot um, we definitely helped each other out but when something big happened, we know we knew exactly where we were supposed to be at that time. So once everything settled down, it took like, I don't know, two or three weeks for, for the dust to settle for us. We started going back into our, I guess you could call it regularly scheduled program. So usually, usually I... Usually I take more of like the speaking to investors side. I'm part of more of the investor relations, whereas Jason. Yeah. So Peely's really investor relations branding really captures on that side, a lot of the social media aspects. And then I'll follow suit with asset management, working on leads, acquiring leads, putting together the repositioning plan. And so that's a good dividing factor for us and gives us good attention where we can both really parlay our strengths. Okay. And, and there must be a team under you, I'm assuming too. Like, do you have employees or contractors or both? Uh, we have one employee. What we do here is we, we employ third parties for the property. So we buy a large property and, and in each area, we'll have set team members, internal and external that we'll work with and within these uh, team members. So your externals are going to be your brokers, your bankers, your property managers, right? Your internals are going to be your asset managers and your assistants, your underwriters who may in fact um, be us or also our employee. And then in the past that we will have now other partners who we may partner with not always um, whether they bring us the deal or they can add they bring some kind of value to the deal um, who will be part of each deal because each deal is uh, its own separate entity we do single asset entities uh, for each one so each one will be its own LLC and so the structure although um, understandable will be slightly different the way each deal is packaged okay so I know like as a person listening to this you hear numbers like 800 properties it doesn't sound like even possible to only have one employee, even if you have partners and everything, it just seems like there'd be so many pieces. And I'm sure when you guys started, if we go back in time, um, I don't know if you ever thought maybe as a vision 800, but you were not thinking, you know, next week we're going to have a hundred properties under management. It's kind of a graduation process to work your way up to that. Um, do you mind if we go back in time? Uh, I don't know who to start with here. Maybe we can go back before you even knew each other, before you were in, in property. I know, Jason, you've got an entrepreneurial background. Um, Peely, I'm not sure I know 
from a previous podcast. I, there was a bit of a, an acting history in here, heading to Hollywood. So maybe we can go back. Um, first of all, where were you both born? We can start there. So I was born in Hilo, Hawaii. Lovely. And Westfield, New Jersey. So yeah, we're both uh, opposite sides of the world, right there, opposite mm -hmm. sides of the U.S. And uh, yeah, I, I Peely, of course, uh, the, the actor's side, but you also did uh, the Ohio Barely. Farm. Yes, I had a berry farm at one point. Okay. I, I I was always busy. I went to college. I got a liberal studies degree because I didn't know what I wanted to do. There was all these things I wanted to do. I was always working on jobs. I've been a librarian. I've been a, uh, I, I took a dabble at farming. I went, I was a bartender, uh, waitress for years. I've done so much in my, like, I feel like I've had so many multiple like lifetimes in my one, my one blessed life that it all kind of led up to where we are today. So, so yeah. yeah. So many times you think you have to find that perfect, uh, you need to find that perfect job, that perfect route, the perfect thing. But sometimes the best case scenario, or most times is that you start doing things that are in front of you to find what you don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And to lead you to where you want to go. Because mm -hmm. ultimately we sit in the sideline with, uh, trying to not take action until that perfect action comes up, but we usually miss it, right? Because we're not ready, we haven't prepared, we have a point where on the opposite side, you see someone out there just plugging along, doing something and putting putting their best foot forward in what they're doing, even if it's not their ideal, you know, whether they're pumping gas or, you know, working at McDonald's, but they're putting it all in, knowing this isn't where they want to do, but they're grooming themselves to find where they want to go. Mm. Uh, on that point, is there a particular job role experience uh, both of you had before you were in real estate that highlighted the part of that task or, you know, aspect of your life that you didn't like? Uh, that was a big, you know, aha moment. Can you think of any specific examples? You know, I, I can think of a ton. I, so I, I loaded trucks on third shift uh, on freezing docks. And, you know, in, in my 20s, I've worked in uh, um, all kinds of restaurants, bars. I, I worked in a construction. I worked uh, in just many capacities, right? But it's not so much like what you don't want to do, but you have takeaways from what you do there, right? You, you learn lessons and it drives you, whether it comes down to the point of, uh, you know, running big staffs or, or understanding um, logistics or noting um, how uh, negotiations work or, or understand the complexities of, of urgency versus first actually needing to do, right? And so you look at those and, and you find where you want to go. However, there, there's always those points, right? Because most of the time they said, well, if you knew, you know, you get that question, if you knew something, you know, knew this 10 years ago, you're like, what would you tell yourself? And it's, well, it wouldn't have mattered because mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been ready. I wouldn't have been prepared to be like, oh, cool, now I'll go. It would just been wasted because they, they, the foundation was forming, right? The foundation was being built. Uh, and I would have, if not, I would have just been, you know, stacking, uh, stacking sticks on, on the ground here that would have had no base to them. And every time I get that question, like, what would I tell my 20 year old self? I would actually tell my 20 year old self not to listen to me because <laughs> everything that she went through, whether it's my 15 year old self, 20 year old self, 30 year old self, everything she went through built up the person that I am today. So no matter if I was in a job or in a situation that was not ideal, that situation created me. So I cannot tell that girl, that woman to do something differently because yeah, chances are I wouldn't have listened because I wouldn't have been ready and everything she went through, I am the, I am the fruit of what she did. So mm -hmm. there's that. But is there like a, you know, I, I was running a berry farm and I realized I hated fruit. <laughs> so I want to stay away <laughs> from produce or, you know, I was packing uh, in, in freezing temperatures and I want to stay away from cold weather. Was there any like moments like that, you, you know, that really made you change business models in, the, in your mindset, I guess, is what I'm saying. No, I think, yeah. I think we, we, we were, we went out to help my dad with the family construction business. We knew this wasn't our ultimate goal, right? But it's not that we didn't find value in, in helping my father, you know, excel in the time that, that we, it was there, right? It, mm -hmm. So it wasn't the, the hate. I don't think we'd go in that light to say that that would, that would be the, the point of the question or the word, but it's like building blocks, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking when we're, when we were lifting houses, I was doing a lot of the phone calls, which I didn't like, I actually don't like to make phone calls. I don't like to talk to people. I don't know. I'm really good at it though. 
So I used to make all the phone calls. I used to do all the sales thing, all the sales. And Jason, he ha- he is incredibly smart. He used to go out there and help out with the blocks. And these are these like heavy, I don't know, 40, 50 pound blocks to hold these homes up. Was that, was that the best use of his capabilities? No. But the thing is those building blocks being able to understand what went into that business has helped us. At least it helped us when we were first getting into real estate. So even those things that you're, and I know you're searching for that thing that we hate <laughs> or don't like to do, but the funny thing is, but yeah, well, we yeah. tell our children there's nothing to hate about life. Yeah. It's no. all building blocks. Every failure, exactly. every success, it's a building block. Yeah. yeah, and it goes back like doing the construction work. Not the best use of my time, but it builds it builds a certain clarity, right? And right. so if you stay there forever, then then ultimately you, you you've made the decision, right? And most of us find a way to blame everything on others, but we just start just taking responsibility, right? So, so you can control where you want to go if you, if you just start making that decision. And it might yeah. not be we we most of the time want something immediately where, oh, I, I made a decision, so now I want it, right? But, but we don't put the time in to, to see it, right? So, we, so we, we, we assume that we plant the seed in the next day where we're right with all kinds of rewards, right? And then that doesn't show up and we say, well, this doesn't work. You know, we're not lucky, we're not this. And we go back to whatever we were doing, right? And then we're miserable at it and we find the misery. I was actually just driving uh, one of our kiddos around and part of the conversation was that you're gonna, you're gonna look for, for the good, right? So if you, if you want to, to look for the bad, it's all around you. But if you want to look for the good, it's always there too, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's mm-hmm. not the best place for you, if you can appreciate where you are, that's going to give you an easier path to get where you want to go. But if you're constantly pushing back on, on where you are and just saying despise, putting your best, worst foot forward, right? You're, you're not putting the right energy in. That's going to cascade on anything that you do further, right? So mm-hmm. anywhere you go, anywhere, anybody you're with, that, that's, that energy, it compounds, right? So you're not going to just shift. And that's usually... Where, where most people miss is that they assume, well, when the opportunity comes up, I'll put my best foot forward, right? I'll put, all, you know, I'll put all my energy then, but you're never ready, right? You're not ready. You haven't done the work. And so most people say, well, I'm not lucky. Well, the opportunity always comes to people. But, but most of us choose that we're not going to put any effort into where we are. So when it, the opportunity or the chance or the moment or the, 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 the position arrives, we haven't done the work. And so it seems too far fetched or just passing it by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, hate is not, not the word I would use. It's more like that nudging in a different direction. Um, yeah. You know, I had a business where the profit margins were very small. So it nudged me to change to a different business because I was looking for greater profit margins. But I'd love to keep the story going forward. So, you know, clearly, as you said, you were building on all these experiences. When did you two intersect? Like, how did you guys meet? Uh, so we met on a rusty old barge on the Hudson River in New York City in the Chelsea Piers area. This was the early 2000s before that whole area became very gentrified. Now it's a beautiful park and it's a beautiful place to go and you can go and do like go to a restaurant and have some day drinking happening. When we first started working there, at least when I started, first started working there, it was cold, miserable. The only reason why I think I got the management position was because I was the only woman who would, and I was 23 at the time, would walk all that way onto this pier that was behind, what was it, the horse stables? Basketball City. Basketball uh, City. And the police horse stables, yeah. <laughs> in New York City at, at, oh, like 11 p.m. at night um, mm-hmm. during the winter, and I, would, and I worked all throughout the winter, so I started managing there. At 23 years old, I started managing this huge nightclub wow. on the water. In comes this guy who wants to work construction. We are repainting parts of the bar and one of the other bartenders. The boat, I don't think the boat. Yeah. yes, you didn't get to go to the bar. Um, one of the other bartenders brings him on. He's like, this is my friend, Jason. He's going to help us paint. Oh, and by the way, he's, he also bartends. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. Um, so actually, Jason could bartend. He could actually bar- bartend circles around me. And the one what? thing that... I, I remember thinking when I was 23 and I was like, well, how am I, how am I the bar manager of this place? I'm just going to hire people who do it better than me. So everyone that I personally hired 
were all better than me. So that's how we met back in 2003. Um, but it wasn't until 2012 that we finally got together. Wow. How come it was so long between meeting and, and getting together? <laughs> no, it's, it's life's path, right? Yeah. I don't think there was a the right way. We, we both had our other relationships, other turns. Pili uh, moved uh, to California. California, to Hawaii, to California, back to New York, back to Hawaii. You know, so she she was uh, on her moment. I, I was um, mostly in New York City, right? But we were, we were just on different paths at that time and uh, past finding the route. And I think it goes back to what we had said previously, you find what you don't want and that leads you to what you want, right? And so we spent so much time with what we didn't want to be, to put ourselves in a position to be what we, what we did want. And the funny thing is, is that when I left for California, I guess who became the manager. So when I got back, now Jason was managing me. Oh, wow. So, so you, you took we, turns. Uh, <laughs> we did a lot of uh, communication back in those days. Uh, but, but that was that was a good learning lesson too, because yes. right, you look at that spot and uh, that we took that uh, you know twenty five times revenue on that place. Mm -hmm. um, we probably had one point two hundred and you know forty to two hundred and sixty employees. Languages, you know, New York City, so a melting pot of languages, right? But you learned how to make things more efficiently from from a, a bar aspect, to, you know, from a cost aspect and from a restaurant aspect, and to be able to do that on a grand scheme where you go, we that that. That bar was pretty incredible. Um, one, actually, two summers we sold more Coronas, the most Coronas in the world, and that was in three months compared to Mexico, like any place in Mexico or anywhere else for their entire year. Whoa. Right. So that's how much volume was happening in that place, and so it, it didn't grow in size. It grew on how many people were coming there, and so we, we were able to maximize you know efficiency. Right, and that that comes a lot to what we do today on buildings is that. You can't always change the sizing, the shaping in, uh, of, of places, but you can make them better places to live by doing a lot of things, right? And that can, that can go down to improving income, you know, um, of course, uh, controlling expenses, um, categorizing different ways to create community, and that trends to better places to live, better communities, better returns, and uh, happier investors. Yeah, well, I'd love to switch to property, but maybe just take us forward so you two, you meet, nine years ish, 10 years later, you're actually together. Um, did you, either of you have property by the time you met or did that all come after you were together? No, no at that point, you know, um, at a restaurant in New York City, opened and sold a brewery at that point. I don't know, I don't think I did that until after. And then uh, we were still running um, some of those places there. And then Hurricane Sandy happened, huge storm uh, in, in the East Coast, right? A lot of uh, detriment to a bunch of areas, with the flooding, with the storm work. And, and my father's business is targeted towards uh, lifting and moving structures. So his business went from doing a handful, you know, 12, 13 projects a year to, to hundreds, you know, one wow. time we had done like 300 projects in a year at the, at the max. So that pro that business went, you know, almost uh, 20 times where it was. So my brother who was working for us and us, we, we moved out to New Jersey, uh, really just helped pop, take, take the business to, to perform at that level. Right. And so that, that was that step, but noting we did that step, we, we knew that this was, this was a step, right? This wasn't the, 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 okay, the, the end, this was the step. We didn't know where that, that was leading to us. And so we didn't know that we wanted to be, or at least learn or, or involve ourselves more in real estate. We thought that was going to be a direction for us. However, we were so busy with the, with the construction side, we were doing so much that all our time was used in construction. So we, we are pregnant was, or, you know, Peely was pregnant with, with Luke, our first, first baby there. 2013. In 2013. Here we are saying, let's get into real estate. And we find our way into, Peely becomes an agent. We start flipping, we start doing wholesales. And we, we learned is that we were so busy and now we just added a lot of other active things on top of it. So the lesson learned there was that we found real estate, but we, we didn't ultimately find our right direction because we were just stacking busy, right? So here's our time, and now our time's going smaller with everything happening, and we're just stacking busier and busier and busier. So we were going further away from our ultimate goal just to really control our day, control our time, you know, be able to choose what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we wanted to do it. So that opened up a lot of questions, right? Yeah. Opened up a lot of things for us, and Peely met someone who, who actually was doing rentals out of state. So I went to a real meeting and I what? met the gentleman and he was like, and he told me about turnkey rentals. And I was like, ah, we don't want to do that. We just, do that. <laughs> Sorry, Billy, I don't want to interrupt you. But there's one thing I have to know before you tell that story. Why did you even choose to become a real estate agent? Like what was, cause what, that was the gateway to all of this by the sounds of things. Is that fair? I know you said you were building and adding on and you were 
sounds like real estate was in your mind for both of you, but committing to becoming an agent is saying I'm getting into real estate, right? Well, it made sense to us because, so we both wanted to get in and getting my real estate license gave me access to this amazing thing called the MLS, which I had no idea what that was about. And it, I look back and I, and I get asked this question a lot, like, could you have done it without getting your license? Can investors get into real estate without getting their real estate license? And I told them yes, but it was great for us, especially when we were flipping wholesaling, because I had my license. I had access to all the numbers. I had access to the data. I had access to incredible training. And Jason had access to construction numbers. He could dig in on that end. So mm -hmm. our, um, our education combined allowed us to take those steps forward. So yes, by getting that license, and I was I was in my first trimester when I took that real estate exam and I got over 90%. So it just, it just seemed like the next step to take, like you, you'd asked previously, like, how did we take that next step? How did one thing launch us into the other thing? So I didn't want to be in the restaurant industry anymore. I mean, we like to tell people we're just, we're just two bartenders that got into real estate. I didn't want to bartend anymore. I didn't want to manage restaurants. And I certainly, New York City's amazing. I certainly didn't want to live there anymore. So we decided to move into New Jersey and take these steps one on top of the other to get to where we are today. Okay. So, so then you have your license. You've got this great combination of the ability to know construction numbers and access to MLS and understanding real estate. How do you come to the conclusion of what your first investment or, or, deal is going to be. Yeah. Well, we actually used what we we're doing right now because we were taking houses and lifting them higher so that hopefully they wouldn't flood again. Right. And with that becomes a lot of things that FEMA requires to make the house um, flood resistant or at least as flood resistant as possible. Right. So there's a lot of things, the height, um, just the area, the space, the, the way the utilities are performing there. So we did that. So we actually did that and, and found a house that could be that, but we took it one step further. Right. We actually took it one step further. We actually took a, you know, a Cape, just a single story house and we raised it up twice. So it was actually the third story now. Wow. And we built a, a first, a new first story underneath and then a garage underneath. So we took a house that was on the ground had no garage, none of that points, added a garage, added in storage and then doubled the footprint. Right. So we added value that way. Um, the one thing that, that we learned, you start doing these projects, New Jersey is not a, um, so we, we found that we found a house and when we did this, we decided that we were going to add the value by just really duplicating the footprint and just adding the square footage, right? Because the, the one thing about New Jersey is it's a very um, expensive state to operate, right? So everything costs more, you know, trades are going to cost more, things are going to cost more, taxes are going to cost more. However, you can get a lot more per square foot, right? Than maybe you could some, some, some other areas, but what we couldn't. Um, really envision here was that the timelines with flips, a lot of things is really just being able to be efficient and cut down your timelines. However, what we were running up to in a lot of our um, projects, we were just doing the construction side of it is there's a lot of things that become out of your control. Uh, we had at that time when Sandy happened, Hurricane Sandy, all the building departments went from maybe having, you know, 10, 20, 50 permits a year to hundreds of permits a year. Right. So now their backlog started happening. So they were trying to get people out there. And then the same thing happened now is they don't have enough people to inspect. Well, the same thing happens now with the utility companies, right? The utility companies now have this overflow of houses that have to meet certain requirements to shut off the utilities and cap the utilities to shut off. So they go from this horizon, maybe it's going to take a week to six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks out here. So we lost control of the timeline of our projects here. And then we went from a, a project that the first project was going to be a really profitable deal into making some money, but nowhere near it because the project went to take like 10 months, right? When it's supposed right. to be like a five, six month project because of all these variables where we no longer were in control, right? And that, that usually is the point here where, where we've we learned that most of life is controlling what you can control. And so you can really focus on the timeline of, of what you can't control. However, unfortunately here, being on this first large project, we, we had a lot of money allocated on this point. You know, we had done it in cash, but a lot of things happening here. And so that, that was driving really the, the direction of where we were going in the future, but also gave us good learning experiences, but, but helped us understand more of what we didn't want to do. Which was these long extended projects. I mean, we did, we actually did end up doing a bunch of them because they were, they were actually fun to do. I mean, we got to add so much value and we had this dream. Our, one of our, 
one of our value propositions was to raise communities one house at a time. And it took in our house raising capabilities and we really wanted to just change up the neighborhoods that had gotten flood ravaged. But these projects were taking so long to do. So finally we started to do easier flips and then we got into wholesaling, which was a whole nother ball game. Okay. Um, I love the sort of the metaphor there of raising up the property to raise up the community. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Um, wholesaling is, is obviously a subject that even I remember when I first was interested in, in property investing, I was like, wholesale, how does that, what does that even mean? Like, I know I can buy e-commerce products at wholesale and then sell them at retail, but I never thought of, you can't buy a house at wholesale. There's not like an Alibaba for houses or something like that. Um, and I also want to tie this in too with the question around viability as a, a, a business to support your lifestyle. Cause it sounds like you two had left the bartending, left New York. I don't know how much your, your family with your father, Jason, how much that business was maybe still supporting you. Cause you guys are your family, you're growing, you've got children now. So you have to sort of balance what you're making from these flips potentially with what other income streams you had. And it sounds like you were kind of, like you said, busy. So you're adding more things on top of it. So the decision to go wholesale, was that also because maybe you're looking for a more consistent income stream? Is that accurate too? Um, I don't know if we've ever needed a consistent income stream. I think, I think one part for us is that we've, you know, I'm always in the assumption I can make more money. And okay. I, that's always been the, the fact right here. And, and when you, I guess, just how it is that, you know, we've never had that like traditional, like, Oh, I want to go to work. And so this Friday I'm going to expect a check. And if I don't get that check. Uh Oh, right. It's always been that fact that we just kind of Neither always have. had jobs. Right. Yeah. And, and you find ways to figure it out and you find ways to make money. And that's just been how we've operated. So the wholesaling was a natural progression, mm -hmm. right. From, from where we were. Um, and what we did a little bit differently is that we started really focusing on one city that had a lot of development going on. And we weren't, quote unquote, finding these wholesales or, or properties where we could just literally push off to someone who wants it as a, a you know, a quick flip. We were look, looking to find um, sites where the houses were not being optimized for the site because they, people were buying these to do development. So we got to the point here, we were finding, um, we were wholesaling properties which were basically going to be utilized as lots for development. And that worked very favorable for us. Um, and it was a short-term horizon. I don't think we did wholesaling for, for long, but when we did get very specific with where we were going out, that's when we were most beneficial. But I don't think we'd like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I like I that. I loved being able to help sellers and help sellers because somebody that's going to wholesale or they're, that's going to sell their property to yeah. us. We were very, very transparent as a real estate agent. I had to be, I had to disclose everything as my fiduciary duty. Um, so I disclosed everything. I let them know what we're going to do, that there was going to be an end buyer. And a lot of these people just needed out of their properties mm -hmm. and they would come to us because we would, that our customer service is is like second to none because we would go in there, we would help them out, anything they needed, we would try to provide any any services they needed, we would try to provide. So on top of being able to get them out of their property quickly, we would help them out with whatever with whatever with whatever life struggles that they were going through. So that was my favorite part about wholesaling. But when it came to flipping and wholesaling as a business, because these are, I mean, they were really two separate businesses. Mm. Again, we were just so busy. We had, at that point, we had two children. We were going out every day looking for properties. We were still in the construction company. We were just starting to get into this thing called multifamily. And if you want, I can jump into the story that that kind of catapulted us into that asset class where we are actually we love it. Like flipping and wholesaling became a job. And if mm. you've understood anything from what Jason and I have told you, like we're not job type of people. We're mm -hmm. not nine to fivers. We like to have control over our lives. And when we feel like we don't have control, we stop that stops being our focus. So once we got into large multifamily and multifamily in general, we found that we had more control over our time. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to hear that, that switch to multifamily. And maybe you can tie it in with this one question that's been sitting in the back of my head here. How do you finance all of this? So how has the finance evolved to this point? And I know it continued to evolve after as well as you hit multifamily. Could you tie that in? Was different, so. Yeah. So, I mean, 
flipping, wholesaling, maybe cash, maybe hard money lenders, maybe private investors, right? And, and as we transition to multifamily, it's a mix of our capital. We raise capital from investors where they help with the down payment, the closing costs, uh, the capital expenditures and fees. And we partner that with some, some kind of debt product. Uh, so whether it's from a, a Fannie or Freddie lender, right? Or we do an agency loan or it's from a community bank or it's a bridge loan product, product which is similar to, to uh, it has similarities to a hard money loan for, for single family. Uh, we're partnering each project based on the, the need of the project, right? With the viable loan that works for this. So it's a partner of equity and debt. And typically we're, we're bringing 75%, 70% uh, in debt, and then the rest is coming from the equity side. Um, you always have your cost of capital here, so we're looking at from a component here of uh, the equity. Typically at most points, it's gonna cost more than the debt. So we're usually parlaying that we will we'll maximize where we can um, to, to have the right debt product, but not be over leveraged, but at the same time, gives us the ability to, to make good returns for our investors based on the capital brought in. Okay, so maybe you can switch to the multifamily story and even how did you finance the first deal in that? Perfect. Sure. So we got into large multifamily because... Uh, Most of them do small multifamily first. Do you want to oh, do a couple of couple yes, 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 please. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, was, I was at the RIA meeting and a gentleman approaches me about the turnkey properties that he has. And I'm just like, not interested, not at all. Um, but he's like, no, you have to look at these here. I'll send you a couple. Just run the numbers. I promise you they'll... If you're not, because we weren't doing any rentals at that time. Um, so I look at them, Jason, I look at them and we're like, these actually look really good. And Jason's like, well, I wonder if they have any duplexes or fourplexes. So I go back to him. I'm like, this looks great. Do you have duplexes or fourplexes? He sends us a few and we end up jumping in because um, they made so much sense. And to, if you're talking about finance, we actually bought these ourselves because the, the, entry level was, I don't I think one of them was like $7,000 and the other one was like Yeah, we were probably in like all in like 40, 50K uh, in the but end run right there with construction. So we were buying them, you know, in the pleated areas. But what it gave us to the point here was uh, it allowed us to understand, you know, investing a thousand miles away, how to, how to package yeah. the team and put people in the right spot. Because some, what we're finding in New Jersey is what happens in New Jersey is you're close to all your projects. So you can become the bottleneck or you can become the person who says, I can do everything better. I can do it quicker. I can do it cheaper or, or any one of those combinations. Right. We just start getting back to the premise like we were um, at the bars that you look at this and collectively you can't do it yourself. But how can you empower other people to do it well so we can all benefit? Right. Because when we say like, yeah, I could do it better, maybe potentially I could probably not. But, it, but if I could, right, well, I'm taking a job away from someone who could probably do it just at least some level of proficiency close to me or, or better, and then I can be focusing on big things. So right now, if we're not in our large multifamily business focusing on leads and focusing on, on money, there's no business, right? So if I'm here, you know, focusing on um, you fill in the blank, and it's not one of those two points here, then I'm taking a role away from somebody else who, who that, that's a good role for them to, to be in that position. And I'm not focusing on the core components, the core components that keep driving the business forward. So it allowed us to basically put the hammer down. We, it allowed us to just manage the property, manage the managers, because this gentleman ended up having the team set up. He had everything set up. We went in, we, we took down the property, we took down the construction, but we were able to manage it from, from New Jersey. And these properties were in Indianapolis, Indiana. So that happens. And all of a sudden the world blows open because now we know that investing out of state is possible. Now we know investing in rentals out of state is possible. So I'm usually not the one that brings the new big idea to the table. It's usually Jason. So of course, Jason sees this and the, his, his head starts and all the numbers start to turn in his head. And one day he's like, Peely, what if we can do 50, 100, 200? And I'm just like, what? Oh my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, I, I like all of a sudden these numbers scare me because I'm like, that just seems like, so out of reach. And I, like, I couldn't see that far, but Jason could see it. So he led us on this path of education to get to where we are today. And we were able to take down that first 94 unit in Louisville, Kentucky within eight months. Do you, do you mind just, cause I know I'm getting a little lost with the numbers before you said, even with that, those first multifamilies, you were talking eight, 9,000 plus construction costs. <laughs> 
what do you yeah. mean <laughs> exactly? Eight nine thousand. Yeah, so we were, I mean, honestly, the houses were completely gutted. You know, rundown areas. There was a ton of, uh, in Indiana, so we were buying these houses very cheap and then putting in thirty, forty thousand to fix them up. Right. These so, houses are ten thousand dollars. That kind of cheap. Ten thousand wow. dollars. Fifteen, sixteen, right there. Okay. You know, so there's a ton of inventory out there. So we're buying them very cheap, and um, they, they they were predominantly, you know, probably C minus areas, right? And so, and like the mailman was living in the block, right? And so you would have houses that, and you could retail them higher than that once you got them on board, right? But you were able to, because there was so much inventory at the time, you're able to buy these houses cheap because there were just so many that, that they were just looking to dispose of, right? So we're okay. buying these houses, putting them back online, of course, continue to carry them forward, mm-hmm. and then. We just saw it wasn't really scalable. Like it, 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 it had context, but if we wanted to go where we wanted to go, it's not like we were going to do you know fifty, seventy, a hundred, two and three families around town. It just sounded like we we're going to have organized chaos or, or some kind of chaos to try and control that. However, if you do get back to the fact here of, of buying a large property, now it's all under one half, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you look at these buildings, a two unit, you know, if one vacant unit, now you're fifty percent occupied. A hundred unit, one vacant, ninety nine percent occupied, right? And so, any small changes, if I go in there and do something to save water in the two unit, it's not going to move the needle that far. Although we've done that on a hundred unit, and and the, the savings increase values hundreds of thousands of dollars because we're doing things that just move the lever just slightly. But when you compound it over such a big building, right? So it, it becomes much more favorable. The banks like it more too because there's less risk on them, right? So you have a lot more tenants that could potentially pay the rent. There's a lot of different ways that you could win large multifamily, and it becomes a commercial property. It becomes a property. It's not specifically targeted at us, so they're not looking at us from the banking side. They're looking at us to make sure we're not bad actors, but it's really focused on on the the property to say is this property a business that that the business plan could be viable to improve the operations and of course pay the debt. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and I mean in my mind though, it's a big jump between. Buying a ten thousand dollar rundown house, putting thirty thousand in to renovate it. I'm assuming you were putting in a tenant, and it was cash flowing small numbers because we're starting from a small base. But to jumping to a ninety four unit complex where you're you know running an entire little village basically uh, with tenants and, and maintenance and construction and so on. Did you make that jump from that small to that big, or were there steps in between? Uh, no, we did. So, yeah. Well, the, the step in between was getting educated, yeah. like really okay. getting out there and like learning and going to those people who already knew how to do exactly what we wanted to do and made sure that we just hung on for the ride because we like we just like put our head down into the books learned everything there was to know about large multifamily and was a, we were able to take that jump because we were able to do that because we got the mentor because we got the education okay yeah, because of mental gap right when you start thinking about it here is that, oh most people think it's safe right oh it's safe i'm gonna go from a single family up to a four unit because that would be safer right or i'm gonna go to an eight unit or ten because that would be safer but when you when we get back to the, the core things we just mentioned right here a four unit one vacant now you're 75 percent occupied mm-hmm. right now it's going to be looking at you from the personal side it's going to have all these other restrictions and 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 also you, you're probably going to be in a whole different subset of buyers the more you grow, the more you can leverage improving a business, right? So if I had a, a 300 seat or even a thousand seat restaurant, like we did, right, where they could take that occupancy or a 20 seat restaurant, right? You might think this 20 seat safer, but you're limited to your capacity, right? You're limited to how many turns you could do, how many people you can put in the door and you still have your fixed costs. Well, the same thing operates like this with a business. So if I do something on the 20 seat right there and, and you know, I order a bunch of food and nobody comes in here, it, the scalability of what happens here is, is much more, um, is hurtful to the business compared to a large business here where if I can control or be more efficient on much many different components, it can really drive the business forward. And I completely understand where your question's coming from because that's the same thing that happened to me when Jason had this grand idea of jumping into these larger apartment bills. And I was like, how can we do that? How can we go from what we're doing to to those numbers, to those, to those dollar signs, to those zeros? I could not make the jump, but it was education and mentorship that allowed me to take those next steps. And truthfully, it was that first closing that really just blew open the doors for me. Could yeah. you take me through that first closing? Because I am I live, currently live in Montreal, and I remember when I first decided to buy property here, I was looking at, like you guys are talking about, sort of small duplex, triplex, uh, fourplex. But then there's this website that has these large multifamilies all the way up to sort of 300 unit things. But I look at the... 
the price tag. And I'm like, well, this, you know, 50 unit complex is 6 million. So I obviously, I'm not going to take 6 million out of my bank account and, and buy it, or the bank's not going to give me, you know, a 20%. I can't, I don't even have 20% down for that. Yeah. Um, so I know obviously I have to find alternative financing partners, some kind of deal. How did you guys address that? And am I kind of explaining a similar number that you were up against compared to the smaller ones for that first yeah, deal? Yeah, sure. So let's let's take that for example here. So a six million dollar property, typically you're going to have to raise about a third of it. So you need to raise about two million dollars, right? And you're still going to be financing about seventy five percent, so at four and a half million dollars. So either you're going to have to have that balance sheet, the net worth requirement, to be able to show that to the bank, or you're going to have to find a partner that can represent that, right? So those are those two gaps. And so you, if you can look at your balance sheet right now, your personal financial statement, and luckily for our first project, we had the, had the balance sheet to do it, right? But, but if you, you have to look at the project and say, do I have that balance sheet? And if not, I might have to track back to a size of which I could afford or find a partner who wants to partner with us and be the net worth balance. Now on the other side, you have to now find that $2 million. So that $2 million now, let's say if you're raising money from investors and you're, you're asking for 50,000 from each investor here, that's going to be that you at least on, on minimum need 40 investors, right? Maybe someone will put 100, maybe someone will put 50, maybe someone will put 200. So let's just say you need 40 investors. So you need to start talking to people and it's going to be about you, right? The, the people that know you is going to be your initial part. You're going to start talking to people who have been in your network and see how you've operated. So we didn't have the large multifamily background or experience before. We had, you know, we were in other businesses. They'd seen us do other things. They knew that we were, we were proactive and we followed through with what we were going to do and say we're going to do. So if you look at those 40 investors you have to have, say that you need to have three conversations to get one yes. Well, that would tell you that if you need 40 investors, you need to have 120 conversations to get to that point here. So you start building out your return. And when you think of it like that, it makes it easy because I hear it all the time. I, I don't know who to ask. Well, you just start explaining to people what you're doing and there's going to be people that you did not expect who, who are looking for this because with any real estate project, there could be a lot of, um, you know, a lot of rewards, right? Well, multifamily is usually, and even during COVID, it was a darling of COVID because it, it has so many different ways you can win. You can win with forced depreciation. You can win with depreciation, tax advantages. And now some of these things are not going to translate uh, the same way to Canada, but, but they have similar components, right? Then you get debt pay down and you get cash flow, right? So you look at these points here. It's easily five ways in portfolio diversification if someone's just on the stock market, right? Now, six ways that you can win with multifamily. Well, if it's a flip, you can fix it and hope to sell it. That's kind of your kind of your route, mm -hmm. right? And most of the time, they're not going to work as rentals in these higher priced areas, right? So you have one exit, right? So so wholesale, typically, you're going to hopefully find an end buyer who can capitalize on that point because you're not going to buy it yourself, right? And, you know, the stock market, you put your money in the stock market and, and it's a dollar for dollar, right? You put a dollar in, you're, and, you know, you're going to get a dollar of Apple, right? Here, I could, I could equitably put 20 cents in or 25 cents in and get that share of Apple, but it's real estate, right? So, you, so your money can go a lot farther. So when you start breaking this down and make it approachable, it doesn't make it the, the top of Mount Vesuvius. It makes it to the point here where, okay, I just have to figure out, you know, what kind of boots to put on here. And then I, let me figure out the next question, the next question and make it actionable. So the investors, what we did is that prior to having the deal, we didn't wait for that because we didn't want to put ourselves in subservience as needing the money. We went out and started explaining to everybody what we we're going to do to generate the interest, to get people involved, to be specific with what we were looking for, what where we wanted to go after. And we were building this um, stable of investors who, who were giving us um, the affirmation that, that they were going to be interested. Right. It wasn't like, here's our money because we weren't asking for it at the time. We didn't know where the project was going to come from. And it took us six, seven, eight months to find that first project. But when we did, we had had clarity with enough conversations to understand that we could raise, I think we had to raise 800,000 in the first one that we had already felt that we could raise that money. So when we went back to that, we just went back to the investors who had already said, yeah, I'd be interested to put in, you know, 25 or 50 or $75,000 and just said, remember we were talking about when we were looking for this kind of avatar property, well, here's the property, we're ready to go. Are you still interested? Mm -hmm. And it made our, our our gap much smaller. It made so it made it easier to get to the finish line instead of starting it cold, trying to explain who we are, what we're doing now, why we're doing it, the type of things we're trying to do, and then also you know the, the structure, right? Because most people can understand maybe a flip or can understand investing in anything, right? So a, a stock market or putting your money into you know a mutual fund or something of that, but but. Not everybody even knows that it's available to, to invest in, in an apartment building. It's to say, hey, we can go buy that apartment building because 
in, in their mind, if they do know about it, they, they believe it's just for the REITs or the larger players or, or uh, you know, uh, the Black Rocks or some of these larger players out there that aren't approachable to a person like them. So we can say that we can do this, right, by, by pulling money together from, from like-kind people, that we can achieve this same results. That's also another mental hurdle that the investor has to understand and take forward. So is, if we go to like today, um, is it a case of what you just described as your typical formula? Like you two are out there looking for that avatar, that ideal multifamily property. You find one and then now you have a, a syndicate basically of, of people who are all ready uh, when you present a, a deal to them that they're going to put in some amount of money to own a percentage of this deal. And then you either eventually sell it, like you said, and then distribute the profits, or I'm assuming there might be some cash flow if it's a revenue producing right. profit. Is that kind of in summary, like what is the big strategy for you guys now in terms of how you run the business today? Yeah, sure. We, we do look for value out opportunities. Typically, the, these are each their own syndication. So we, we partner each one with a, a holding period. So five to seven years, we're going to hold the property. We look to come into a, a property that's underperforming, whether it's on the, the building side or the property side or, or the, the, the management side. Typically, it's, it's a combination of both, right? And so from that, and then from <laughs> that context, we look to put in a, a proper practices that can improve the operations and, of course, in, improve the, the revenues and improve the cash flows and returns. So and we partner that by bringing those investors in and we look to, of course, meet the business plan and then exit in, in the timeline that we talked about earlier. Okay. So as a snapshot today, um, and, and this is kind of like a, a question I was curious about in terms of you guys and how you're generating, like, how do you decide to take out your own money from this project? Do you, do you just take the capital from one? Cause it sounds like you could forever just take capital from one, put in the next, but you have to, you know, feed the kids. You have to pay, you know, live somewhere and, and, you know, medical, all those sorts of things. So how do you draw money from a business yourself? Especially because yeah, sure. you must be always tempted to, to put it into the next project too, right? Like, how do you balance that? Yeah, yeah they're great deals. So we like to invest side by our investors. Yeah. That's part of the, the um, philosophy. However, we, we have, for packaging and, and finding the deal, we do get uh, fees, right? So we get an acquisition fee coming off the front end. We get an asset management fee for, of course, the operation of the project here. And then we'll get a split of cash flow. Right. And so at some point here, whether we sell and get our investment back where that can go into it or we refinance and pull that capital out, uh, we, we do have um, other cash flows and other fees that come out of the project for preparing and partnering and, of course, doing the plan for the investors. Okay. So, yes, to, to answer your question, we do. And we try our best to invest in every single deal that we have. Uh, the only times we haven't invested is that if we are oversubscribed, yeah. we would rather provide the opportunity to our investors that want to get into our deals than to just to hold the space for ourselves. Yeah, if, we've, if we haven't put out that we would be invested, if, if it does come to context where we have so many investors, which happens frequently, you know, we raise sometimes in a day we'll get these raised where we'll, we'll, we won't put the capital in because we'd rather have more people be able to seek the opportunity. Um, and they're not all syndicates. We actually closed one the other day here where, where the uh, um, investor came in and wanted to be the sole partner. So he put in the sole capital for the project. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> one person to deal with, probably a little slightly easier on the logistics. Um, maybe last question for you two, um, or maybe second last, we'll see. If I'm a person listening to this, I've got $25,000 in my bank account. Um, I was thinking about where to invest. You know, I you mentioned shares and all that, but I've decided property is it. But I thought with my $25,000, I'm going to buy a condo and put a tenant in there, or at best, I'm going to buy a duplex and maybe live in the, the bottom and put a tenant in the top and help for pay my rent. Would you steer that person to something different, or do you think they still should start there? I know everyone's different, but maybe from, from where you guys stand today. So the conversation would always be, what what does the investor want to do? We would provide the information on large multifamily. We would tell them, this is exactly what we do, start to finish. Are you interested in it? But if that's something that they want to do, say, say the conversation comes that they need some place to live. So house hacking is a great way to have some place to live and to have the tenant pay for the entire mortgage. So it really comes, this is, this is what I tell everyone. It comes down to the other person mm -hmm. and you 
What kind of opportunity can you provide to them? And is that an opportunity that they need? Because if they don't need that opportunity, I'm not going to shove it down their throat. Because number one, it's not they're not going to appreciate it. And number two, chances are they're not ready for that opportunity. Once they are ready, I'm going to be right there waiting. Their friend that knows large multifamily, that they know that they can, can talk to me about their financial needs, about their struggles, their needs, their wants their goals because it's not about me it's not about me raising money i'm using air quotes it's about me providing them an opportunity it's about jason and i having the opportunity to give them some place to safely put their money yeah, so we'll have investors come over to Yerusi Holdings and talk to us about um, investing, right? And so, but part of the, the narrative here is that we it, this is a partnership you're going to be with us for a while. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure that the goals align, right? So, so some of the things here is that these are longer opportunities, right? So we said three, five, seven years. So if you're looking for a short-term horizon, you know, six to twelve months, it's not going to be the right opportunity for you, and that's fine, right? Maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow. If you're looking for um, to be active, right? We're we're not looking for active partners, right? This would be a passive investment, right? So again, wouldn't be the right investment, right? So we don't, we don't need you. We, we would love to give you the opportunity. We don't need you to be invested. We want to make sure it aligns with your business strategy, right? It aligns with your goals, right? So it aligns with where you're trying to go for your future, right? And so and that usually comes to context where it may be right for you or it may not. And it may not be right for you today, but maybe in a year or two years or three years it is. All right. Sounds good, guys. So where can we send people to if they are interested in, in getting in touch or just learning more? Uh, you can get us at our website, www.derusyholdings.com. Awesome. Any other places you want to send people to? I don't know if you guys are active on Twitter or anything like that. or place but okay really, if you go to that website you'll yeah. find us on all the other social you find Peely on instagram at Peely Rusi or, or jason Rusi on instagram if you want the personal side there yeah, yeah business side if you want to learn about the investment standpoint Rusi holdings would be the best spot and you two have a podcast too right so do you talk a lot about this these sort of multifamily topics on the on that show yeah, yeah. Uh, multifamily live podcast it, it is as said uh strictly devoted to talking about multifamily. So from all sides, from just the, the mental aspect to the actual um, meat potatoes of the business itself. Okay, yeah. awesome. And you can actually also find that link on our website. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure if, if it's a year or two from now, that number will be like a thousand prop, you know, doors or 1200. So it's going to keep going. Exactly thousand mark but i have to check okay. so i actually have to see where we are I'll update the website yeah you probably have to update the website once a week yeah. at the moment so no i do appreciate the time and thanks for the insight into what you guys have done and uh the journey from you know bartending to to multifamily it's certainly uh well you've been busy it sounds like there's been a lot going on so yeah thank you for sharing thank you Ar. thank you